Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Bob Zellinger is a business-oriented transactional attorney who facilitates mergers and acquisition deals. With over 30 years of experience in working with businesses of all sizes, he brings unique insight into what works and doesn't work when deals are getting done and structured. In transactions that he will share with us today, Bob talks about a number of insights that we don't often hear about on the podcast. For example, I want you to listen closely to his explanation on how buyers will often research a market segment to identify companies in a specific industry or niche that is underserved or that has consolidation opportunities and then decides to create a platform. Building a platform is a strategy that is becoming more popular today for buyers as they seek out companies that they want to acquire. Bob shares with us what the benefits are for a platform company and how it is structured and how this can benefit business owners when they look to sell their business and how smaller companies that might not otherwise be of interest to buyers can suddenly show up on their radar and be of high interest when a platform company is the buyer. As Bob puts it, they will do bolt-on acquisitions to their platform company. Now, I want you to pay really close attention to this part of the interview where he talks about what platform companies are and how they might benefit you as a seller. Bob also talks about how small, insignificant revenue sources can become a big headache in doing deals, as well as how regulatory issues need to be taken into consideration when positioning a company for sale. Finally, Bob wraps up how timing is a critical issue when it comes to thinking about selling a business. And then Bob wraps up the interview by talking about how 50-50 partners that couldn't stand each other and, in fact, were at a point where they couldn't be in the same room together actually were able to successfully exit their business. All in all, Bob brings a different perspective to this interview that isn't always heard on this podcast. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Bob Zellinger. Bob, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself? He's an attorney uh, located in the Northeast and uh, chat a little bit about where you're located and a little bit about what your practice focuses on and the type of transactions that you traditionally get involved in. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Appreciate it. Uh, Again, my name is Bob Zellinger. I'm an attorney with uh, Hinckley Allen. I'm located in their Hartford office. Uh, The firm has offices throughout the, uh, the Northeast. Uh, We're a general practice business firm. We have about 160 lawyers uh, throughout our offices. Uh, I'm engaged as a general business attorney. All my clients are closely held uh, enterprises uh, from pre-revenue, and my largest client is probably uh, 500 uh, million in sales. So it runs the gamut. Uh, I engage exclusively in closely held businesses and family owned businesses. 
And a large part of my practice is uh, advising clients, uh, both on the purchase side of buying uh, closely held businesses and on the sales side of exiting uh, those type of, uh, of enterprises. I've been uh, practicing uh, for 35 years. Uh, I'm totally industry agnostic. Uh, my clients uh, hail from a variety of uh, industries and endeavors. Uh, and uh, that's what keeps it interesting because I have to learn about new businesses and what, what propels these businesses uh, on an ongoing basis. Well, since you're involved in the transactions as you help private companies and entrepreneurs, founders uh, exit their businesses, why don't we jump in and chat a little bit about some of those transactions, you know, from a little different perspective than a lot of our guests here on the podcast who are M&A advisors, investment bankers, and sometimes wealth managers, but uh, from an, an attorney's perspective of some of the type of things that you see that kind of crop up to make the transactions a little bit more challenging to get to the closing table and some of the takeaways that we might uh, learn from some of those transactions. So why don't we jump in and talk about a transaction that had its challenges and some unexpected turns of events that possibly could derail a transaction and preclude it from closing? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. I have, uh, I have a couple in mind uh, uh, a year ago or so. Uh, we sold a uh, family-owned uh, business that was engaged in uh, stamping and deep-drawn metal components uh, used uh, for the general industrial market. They're kind of a manufacturer? Yeah, exactly. They manufactured uh, you know, stamped and uh, deep-drawn metal components for a variety of industries. Did he start the business? Uh, was there partners? Or tell us a little bit about the ownership structure. Uh, the owner uh, was an individual owner, uh, owned all the shares himself, uh, didn't start the business, purchased the business uh, years and years ago uh, when it was fairly, fairly small and consequential. And he grew and developed it uh, into uh, a fairly good size uh, regional manufacturer uh, that had customers uh, actually throughout the world. And uh, that particular transaction closed at around fifty million. So he had, uh, you know, enterprise value of about fifty million dollars. Was he just uh, getting towards retirement, or was he younger? Uh, no, he was. Uh, he was getting toward retirement. He was in his uh, late seventies. Ah. Uh, still a very vibrant, uh, active. Uh, you know, worked seven days a week. Uh, uh, very fit and in good health. Uh, but. You know, he just realized it was time now to uh, to maybe take take a step back from the business. And and although he continued on with the new owners uh, in, a, in a consulting uh, a capacity, he, he, you know, he just wanted to uh, cash out, if you will, which he did. Did he have any family members that worked in the business? Yeah, uh, one of his sons uh, worked in the business and uh, was one of the uh, floor managers and uh and continued on uh, with the buyer. Uh, don't know how long. Don't know if there if he's still there. But uh, he did not have an ownership stake. But he did continue on um, with, with the purchaser. Uh, talk to us a little bit about who the buyers were and who were some of the people that came to the table. I would imagine that there were probably more than one individual or group of companies that were interested in the business. Who was this particularly of interest to? Oh, and, you know, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, th you know, this went through a a uh, investment banker process. So, uh, you know, they created a competitive bidding situation, and uh, 
the buyers or the prospective buyers came from from all the categories you would expect. There were strategic buyers who already involved in these businesses and wanted to expand their uh, market share and perhaps uh, gain some technology or employees or machinery uh, or, or uh, you know, just a different region of the country. So there was the strategics, there were the private equity folks uh, who were very active in this, uh, you know, who looked at it completely as a financial play. And uh, in one case wanted to establish this uh, you know, as a platform company on which they could bolt on additional acquisitions. So this was going to be their main company in this industry. And then they were going to uh, do a roll-up strategy where they bolted on additional acquisitions. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's a platform company. That's a term that comes up occasionally that I know I've gotten some feedback from members of our audience uh, that aren't all that familiar with that type of strategy. Why don't you just elaborate on that a little bit of what a buyer who is developing a platform and what really that means? Yeah, typically uh, it's uh, it's a term that's used by uh, private equity uh, type investors uh, as they're you know looking at their own objectives and goals for their funds. Uh, they do a ton of research on different industry groups and uh, they decide uh, for good financial reasons and, and background and a lot of their a lot of their research that a particular industry is fragmented and they'd like to uh, consolidate a bit. So what they try to do is they establish one good sized company, you know, with the market uh, industry value of, you know, 50 million to 100 million or, or much higher. Uh, and they establish that as their platform uh, onto which they will make additional acquisitions uh, that would be accretive to earnings so that they can uh, scale that model to a much larger size, which they can then in turn sell to one of the behemoth public companies that, that are engaged in that industry. So that's you know a summary of what platform companies are. What's interesting for sellers though, is platform companies are sometimes a very good place uh, to sell your company, even though you might be a bit smaller uh, because private equity companies will look uh, you know, at it as a bolt-on rather than as a platform company. And they, so to speak, tuck, tuck your, your business into the platform. Uh, and that gives smaller companies a route to private equity. Uh, whereas most most uh, small companies are are not uh, very attractive to private equity players, and they usually don't get much interest. So this is a way of of getting a private equity uh, buyer uh, to the table. So if I'm a, a company owner out there and I'm looking at who my potential buyers might be, and I'm not a large company into the tens or twenties million, $30 million range, I might still be of interest to a private equity if it fits their strategy of acquiring smaller companies, as you say, to quote, bolt on to their platform. Precisely. You have, uh, you've summarized it uh, much more articulately than I did, but that's exactly right. So uh, in this particular situation, was this acquisition a bolt-on or was this a platform? What stage were they in, this particular client of yours? Uh, interestingly, uh, this, this client was purchased by a foreign uh, company uh, 
a very large company, publicly traded company uh, in Switzerland, uh, one of the leading companies in the EU and uh, had operations in Europe, uh, North America and the Orient. Uh, and this, they were, this was attractive uh, to this Swiss company because uh, this particular company had certain processes and machinery that rounded out their offerings um, in, the, in the United States. So even though they had operations in the United States, they didn't particularly do some of these processes. So they were able to integrate this and they felt that they would be able to offer their clientele uh, more services uh, without having to, you know, have them sent out to other other manufacturers that they could take a project uh, from conception through completion uh, with their manufacturing. So that that was the reason uh, this company purchased the manufacturing company of uh, of Deep Drawn Metals. You know, I might say when you, when you said what are some of the challenges, one of the things that you should keep in mind, or anyone should keep in mind, is depending. Uh, on the buyer, there may be uh, certain unexpected or uh, you know, unintended consequences. Uh, in this case, uh, because the buyer was foreign and because this uh, business produced certain defense-related items, uh, the entire transaction had to be cleared by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, which is a federal committee. And uh expensive and very time consuming and uh, it may have changed the dynamics had uh, the owners of the seller known this going into it they might have chosen another buyer that was not a foreign buyer but be that as it may the uh, you know the transaction closed everyone was happy uh, but it was more complicated more time consuming and more expensive than than they anticipated because of those those regulatory issues so a lot of our Listeners aren't going to probably be entertaining buyers that are international, but what's kind of the takeaway here? You know, it sounds like small, inconsequential issues that you may never even think of, but once you get into the due diligence process, raise their little ugly head and they can totally derail a company transaction. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, it, and it's not only when you have a foreign buyer. I, I did another recent transaction. Uh, this was a smaller, smaller deal. Uh, but it was a uh, CNC machining uh, and assembly company. And, uh, you know, they produce parts for telecom and home security and general electronics. But recently, they ventured in the firearms world. They took a proposal from a, a large firearms manufacturer who was looking for a part. And uh, they decided to make that part. And as a, re as a requirement, once you, once you get into that field, you need certain regulatory uh no you're talking about firearms once they took on this client exactly uh, because they were in the firearms that's a regulated industry with uh right the atf or whatever regulatory agencies are out there that can complicate issues on a sale i would imagine that's precisely right so uh if you're thinking about selling you know it's important to sort of take a uh audit or 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 you know think through the various products or services you offer and make sure that whatever regulations are around that or any compliance needs or permits or licenses that are needed can be transferred uh, to a buyer. In this case, uh, the federal firearms license uh, cannot be transferred. 
which means that the buyers, even though they wanted to do an asset purchase, could not do an asset purchase and was forced into doing a stock purchase, something they really didn't want to do, but had to do if they wanted to keep that business. So just out of curiosity, when we go back to the first transaction you were talking about, about the manufacturing company that sold to a foreign buyer here, I'm just kind of curious, the part that they were manufacturing or that they did, was that a large revenue source to them? No, it, it was actually immaterial. As I said, it was, you know, the enterprise value is about 50 million. Part that they manufactured uh, that happened to be a washer but the washer was used in the controls for nuclear devices. So it, it was a very, it, it's a part that could never malfunction because it, it uh, was connected to the, uh, the starter buttons on these nuclear arms. Uh, as a result, it, it was only worth about 200,000 for the company. You know, they would be better off probably having dropped that line and not having gone through uh, all the regulatory uh, hoops that they had to jump through uh, in order to uh, prove the transaction. So it's a great question. So jumping forward to this transaction that you're talking about, the manufacturer that provided telecom and home security issues, and they took on this business of firearms, was that a significant piece of business or was it also kind of a, a smaller component of their total revenue? Uh, initially, uh, the, the reason they took it on is because even though initially it would be a very small part of the revenue, if they were successful, it would very rapidly become, if not their largest customer, one of their largest customers. So it was really an investment in the future. And I think that's really what attracted, uh, interestingly, in that case, the buyer was a private equity buyer. And what attracted the private equity buyer uh not sure it was going to be a platform company, but what attracted the private equity buyer was the room of growing with this particular, uh, you know, firearm type type part, uh, and they felt that had wonderful potential, and and that's why uh, they bought the company, the upside potential. So I guess the takeaway in in these type of transactions, really, as I contemplate what you've said here, is really that you take a look at what type of issues as you take on new clients, especially if you're looking at some point in the future, maybe years down the road or, or less than that, uh, of what type of issues are going to come up with the type of customers you have, especially when there's regulators involved in the business. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, one needs to have a good understanding of the, the type of products that are currently being manufactured or services that are being provided and what the plan is for the future, just in case uh, you have to comply, uh, you know, with particular permitting or licensing requirements and depending on what type of buyer you have. Uh, you know, the minute you see a foreign buyer, a bunch of things, you know, should come should come to the forefront. And that's not to say that, you know, you should be drawn away from a foreign buyer. Sometimes they offer the best prices and and sometimes they are the best buyers. So you just have to be aware of uh, of some of the complexities that might occur. So right now in the market, as we have it right now, there seems to be a lot more foreign buyers in the market. Is that an accurate representation of what's going on in the market right now? Yes. Yes, it has been for, for several years now. Uh, you know, many foreign companies are looking, you know, the U.S., you know, pre-COVID and, and even post-COVID, you know, is the engine of growth and, uh, you know, largest market in the world. And, and a lot of foreign companies 
uh, want to have an outpost in, uh, in the United States. All right. Well, those are similar type of situations that involved regulatory issues, different types of businesses, certainly. But I guess the takeaway for both of them is that sometimes small details that you may not think are going to be an issue down the road end up being a big issue. And in the case of the first company you mentioned to us, a rounding error in, in the type of revenue they were generating, but had some pretty broad implications on being able to successfully conclude that transaction. So small issues can cause big problems down the road. Precisely. Whereas in the second case, the firearm thing, that really was uh, something very important for the buyer to maintain because that was going to be sort of the engine of growth in the future. Interestingly, uh, because you know we represented the seller, uh, because of that, uh, we insisted and, and we argued uh, with buyer's counsel that because it really was to the benefit of the buyer, the buyer ought to assume all the costs uh, regarding compliance with uh, the federal firearms licensing and the transfer of that license. So, so we were able to shield the seller from, from having to incur those costs. All right. Well, let's jump to another transaction here, Bob. These are certainly a little bit unusual type of transactions that raise some issues that people can think about as they consider their own situation. But uh, let's jump to something maybe in the kind of a more pedestrian type of businesses we have on the landscape. Uh, sure. A couple come to mind. Uh, and and I, I guess, you know, the... Uh, the takeaway or what these what these two illustrate is uh, regardless of what industry you're in, there's no substitute for being in a industry that's hot at the moment that uh, attracts a lot of buyers. Uh, sometimes you can be the you know you can be you know the best purveyor or the best manufacturer of particular items. but if those if those products are are not uh, sought after, uh, by potential buyers, then it's difficult to uh, to sell those companies. Uh, in this case, it, it was easy to sell them because both uh, both these companies uh, were involved in in areas that uh, are are very are very uh, robust at this time. Uh, the first was a veterinary hospital, and there's uh, a lot of interest in veterinary practices throughout the United States. Again, it's a very fragment, fragmented market. Is that the reason there's a lot of interest because of the fragmentation in the market and there's really no dominant player? Yes, there's there's fragmentation, but really what's driving it is uh, America's uh, love and fascination with pets and the fact that uh, the, it's not an insurance model, typically. You can buy pet insurance, but typically it's cash and carry. So. Uh, if you, you know, if you have a pet, you take them to the vet, they get their serviced, uh, and you pay at the time. And then there's all sorts of add-ons, you know, the vitamins and the, you know, the special diets and, and pills and all sorts of other things that are, that are purchased, uh, at that point of sale. So, uh, it's become a, a, a an exploding market, if you will, it's billions and billions of dollars. Uh, so, so as a result of that, uh, there have been companies have uh, gotten into the uh, business of uh, consolidating and rolling up various veterinary practices. And they're, they're well known. There are about six or seven acquirers in the space. Everybody knows who they are. Uh, so it's easy to attract them. You don't need an investment banker necessarily because the marketplace consists of 
you know, six, seven, eight players. And they're all very uh, transparent and open to uh, negotiations. And they have very well uh, staffed uh, business development operations. And they're attracting, you know, er every vet in the United States knows they can sell their practice to one of these companies. And, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's not the usual case that you can do that. So what you're really saying, I guess, when you talk about types of businesses, types of industries that are in vogue, you're really talking about being in the right place at the right time. You're really talking about a timing issue here. And the takeaway for our, our audience may be is that when you have something that is in vogue and the timing is right, perhaps you shouldn't wait. You may want to strike while the there's a lot of interest in the market because things do change. Uh, absolutely right. Things have changed dramatically in the in, in this last year, COVID related. Uh, lot, you know, the pre-COVID aerospace companies were uh, trading it. it great multiples, tons of interest in aerospace, whether on the commercial side or on the defense side. And clearly now, uh, defense side aerospace is still very hot, but commercial aerospace uh, is not. So if you happen to own a manufacturing company whose customers are primarily commercial aerospace, uh, there aren't gonna be many interested buyers. Whereas a year or two ago, there would be plenty of interested buyers. That's going to change again, though, in a couple of years as as people uh, get back out and the travel industry recovers and airlines recover, uh, that will come back as well. You know, I uh, have heard a lot of stories that have been shared here on the podcast of owners that decided to hold out and tomorrow was always going to be a better day and their company was always going to be worth more in the future. Sometimes that isn't the case. And so that is at least something that should be taken into consideration, especially if you're in an industry, as you said here, the pet industry, whether that's veterinarians or other pet related issues. As you said, they, it is a hot sector. And it may be a hot sector in the future or it may not. But, you know, sometimes the future isn't always as bright as one would expect. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely true and a, and a great lesson to be learned. Uh, and primarily it's the nature of, of these type of closely held businesses. You know, one of the you know, one of the truths are there is no market for these businesses. You have to create a market. And that's why investor investment bankers and intermediaries exist. Uh, because, you know, if you own a small company or a closely held company, there's no stock exchange on which you can sell it. You can't walk into Merrill Lynch and try to sell your company. So instead, you, you hire an investment banker or an intermediary or a broker who tries to uh, create a marketplace and a competitive bidding process. And mm -hmm. that that changes uh, frequently, as, as you mentioned. Uh, you, you never know really what, what buyers are looking for or, or uh, what's sought after. So what other types of sectors out there are hot and maybe transactions you've been involved in that have a lot of interest in the in the market right now as far as people looking in the specific sector? Uh, right. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, aerospace is still on the defense side. Aerospace on the defense side is still, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, very active. Uh, home health care is a, a very active sector. So have you done any transactions in that sector? I've done transactions both in aerospace and in home health care. I, I completed one uh, not too long ago. 
uh, in the home healthcare uh, space. Uh, again, a uh, a strategic buyer in this case who was just uh, consolidating all the small players and creating a, a very large national footprint, and uh, which is which is also you know very typical for uh, a consolidation strategy. Tell me a little bit about this particular transaction. Was it a sole owner partnership? family operation? What type of business ownership did it have? Two partners uh, who uh, had formed the uh, business together and uh, over time uh, grew uh, further and further apart. Uh, So this was uh, an example of a business divorce, uh, which makes things uh, uh, both, you know, more complicated, more costly and takes a much longer time when the two principals, you know, don't see eye to eye about anything. And in fact, in this case, uh, the two principals are really couldn't even be in the same room together and everybody lawyered up. You know, typically there's one lawyer that represents the business and typically represents the owners of that business. In this case, there were three lawyers, one who represented the business and one each for, for each of the owners. So uh, that added a level, a level of uh, complexity and uh, complication that, uh, you don't often have, but when when it, when you do get it, it's uh, it's problematic. So when you say home health care, this is providing nurses and medical assistants to go into the home and coming in once or twice a week or maybe every day. Is that the type of business that they had built? Exactly, exactly. Which is uh, you know very uh, popular. They you know they they've really grown. That industry has really grown precipitously and and in. in uh, in the last several years, decades, actually. Well, I, have, I do know that a number of our listeners are in that sector. I'm just kind of curious if you could share with us our, from a from a buyer standpoint that are looking at the home healthcare industry, are these national players that are consolidating and looking for opportunities in different markets. So elaborate on, you know, what kind of the strategy is for the buyers that are kind of, as you say, rolling up or acquiring home health care uh, in different parts of the country. Yeah, typically it's a consolidation, uh, sometimes private equity backed, sometimes not, but it's uh, usually the buyers are already in the industry themselves, uh, usually a larger footprint and they're acquiring uh uh, tuck-ins or just, you know, acquisition of, of clients or patients and acquisition of market share. Uh, interestingly, I think the first thing that buyers look at is the payment mix. You know, is it government paid or is it private paid? Uh, clearly, there's a premium for private paid as opposed to, to government paid. Uh, Medicare has uh, very strict guidelines, you know, certain, you know, certain pricing for certain services, et cetera. Uh, but the mix, you know, if you're primarily, if you're 100% Medicare, that's going to be a different deal than if you're 50-50, let's say, or if you skew toward uh, more private pay. Uh, also, you know, what's the service, uh, you know, what's the service model? Is it mostly medical or is it mostly, you know, companionship and homemaking and things along those lines, sort of the soft skills, as opposed to, you know, having to have professional uh registered nurses or licensed practition, uh, practice nurses, or, you know, people with specific training. So, so looking at the characteristics of the, of the target, uh, very important to buyers. 
So I would imagine, given the aging demographic and people living longer, and that is certainly a growth area, and I would imagine that's somewhat what is fueling this interest at this time. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it's it's demographically uh, uh, driven, and it's also driven by the fact uh, that as the uh, baby boomers age, uh, many of them don't want to uh, leave their homes or um, go to extended care facilities or, uh, you know, different type of, you know, settings. They'd rather, rather stay at home. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what's uh, driving this. And also uh, the government uh, is now starting, you know, has started and continues to pay for uh, home-based care uh, out of the institutional framework. So as that becomes more popular uh, and there's more pay, payer sources, uh, it attracts more people to the field. I'm just kind of curious on this uh, transaction you were involved in where you actually had partners that, as you politely said, I guess, uh, politically correct said that they drifted apart and didn't even want to be in the same room with each other. Was part of that because they were at different stages in their lives and one kind of wanted to get out of the business and not have anything to do with it? Or did they both want to get out of the business? Did one want to stay in the business? What were the different objectives and issues that as a transaction unfolded that surfaced in the negotiation? Well, well, they did have different objectives. Uh, one of the partners was older and wanted to retire and leave the industry completely, you know, just get out and cash out. Uh, whereas the, the other uh, founder uh, was younger and wanted to stay on for a few years, either with a buyer or uh, with another uh, home health agency. Um, initially, we try to structure it where the younger um, partner would buy out the older partner, uh, but that didn't work because of, you know, uh, lending, you know, was, was there enough going to be enough cash at closing? You know, how is, how is the note going to be secured for anything that wasn't paid at closing? And because communications and trust had sort of uh, uh, weakened, uh, you know, the, the, the departing, uh, the older uh, partner did not want to uh, take the chance of being owed a substantial amount of money by the younger partner. So as a result, you know, they decided to sell to an unrelated third party, which they did do. Um, but what was important in the transaction really was trying to satisfy, you know, each of their objectives, uh, you know, with the, with the buyer. So, you know, it worked out that the younger uh, partner was able to uh, continue on with the buyer and uh, sign on as an employee for three or so years, which uh, satisfied her objectives. And uh, the other lady was able to retire and get to the beach or uh, whatever she wanted to do. Well, I know that partnership divorces can get pretty ugly, and especially when they're co-owners of a business. And it's been a, had a lot of transactional stories here on the podcast where they didn't work out as well as the transaction you've described here. So why don't we move on and talk a little bit about a couple of transactions that I guess you're saying that all the transactions that you've been involved in up to this point, sharing here on the podcast, did actually make it to the closing table. So I guess those are considered successful. What about some that went maybe pretty well and didn't have some of the issues that you've, you've chatted about? Although most transactions have issues. Some just less so. Yeah, most of the most of the transactions that I've been involved in over the last decade or so, uh, you know, they all have issues. Some anticipated, some not anticipated. 
you know, some are smoother than others, uh, but all of them have, have issues and frustrations. Uh, but, you know, as, as you said, I mean, to the extent that they actually close and the owners are, uh, are happy or are satisfied with the results, that's, you know, that's a success in my book. So, uh, you know, they're never, I, you know, I can't think of one that's been a straight line with, uh, with no curveballs, but, uh, to the extent that they close, uh, and don't stall and not close, uh, those are successful. There are plenty of times when these things begin and they get pretty far along and for whatever reason, they don't close. Expensive process. So why don't we chat about another transaction you've been involved in? Uh, sure. Um, this sort of, uh, brings to mind uh, how niche and, and how specialized businesses can be. Uh, I was involved in the sale of a company that uh, is engaged in uh, fire hose, pump and ladder testing uh, for fire departments. You know, that's not even something I thought was a thing, but, you know, people actually have companies that do this. And in this case, it was, uh, it was owned uh, by a fund, by an investment fund, and it was going to sell uh, to another investment fund uh, as a bolt-on to a platform company. So you had this very niche uh, single-service company, the seller, that was going to sell to a, a more expansive uh, industrial testing and compliance company that was going to use this company as their, you know, fire services division, and they they already. Uh, serviced a bunch of other industries as well. So, uh, you know, it's a good example if, you, if you're involved in a business uh, that's specialized in Nietzsche and you think, wow, there are only a few uh, buyers or a few people involved that could possibly uh, uh, be interested in this. That's not the case necessarily. Uh, that's why I think, you know, and, and no advertisement here, but I, I think that's why it's so important to uh, retain a qualified an investment banker, an intermediary, a broker, someone who's going to create that market for you because they have contacts and they have uh, sourcing that's just not uh, available to, to regular individuals. I mean, every business owner knows who their competitors are, and that's not necessarily the only market for your business. You know, competitors may become potential buyers, but that's not exclusively you know where where the uh the search should end and i i find too many uh owners of of closely held businesses say to me oh yeah i already have a buyer in mind well that's great you might have one buyer in mind but at this at this stage it's important to create that uh process and auction so that you can maximize uh, the value of the company so in this particular transaction that you're mentioning to us, tell us a little bit more about the type of business it was. Uh, as, as I said, the business was, was, was a really specialized thing. What it did is uh, uh, it had equipment, testing equipment that uh, went from firehouse to firehouse in its market area uh, to service its customers. Uh, it is a requirement. Uh, by law that fire hoses and pumps and other type of safety equipment that's used by firefighters are tested every so often. I don't remember how often, uh, but just let's say like fire hoses have to be tested every quarter and they get a cert, you know, they get a certification. Uh, so this is a requirement. Every fire department has to do it. 
So the question is, you know, who are they going to hire to do it? And there aren't many companies that uh, perform these services. Uh, so it's, it was very directed, very, very specialized. And most of their employees were uh, not surprisingly former firefighters uh, who knew a bit about the business, who knew a bit about the equipment and who had contacts. The downside of a company like this is uh, almost all of their customers are government-based. Fire departments are typically uh, run by the municipal government administration of towns, cities, and counties, which means all your revenue is coming from a government source. So you have to go through a, uh, you know, you have to go through a, a purchase order cycle, and then uh, you've got to wait a little bit longer for your money, and it's a whole selection process, and you know, it's it's difficult dealing with government sometimes as your only source of uh, a business. I think uh, that's why the buyer was interested in this company because it sort of uh, spread out their you know spread out their customer base to include uh, not only private pay customers but also uh, municipal. So they were able to bring a larger suite of services to the attention of municipalities and county governments uh, that were using this. Uh, this fire testing company. Well, that's an interesting outlook considering the type of payment structure that you get paid for whenever you're dealing with large uh, multinational companies or large behemoths that uh, become a significant portion of your sales. It can cause problems when you get into due diligence. And I guess you're saying in this particular case, uh, when you're dealing with municipalities and government entities, that working capital issue can become a significant issue when you're talking about 30, 60, 90, 120 day payment. Exactly right. I mean, the, the payments are secure, but they might take much longer to get paid. So there, 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 are, there are cash flow issues that you have to uh, you have to plan for. And if, if that's your only source of payments, uh, it's not like you can uh, you know, leverage one, one source against the other. Bob, uh, you had mentioned to me earlier in our discussions about a company that was involved in the online world, the Amazons of the world that require a lot of uh, warehouse space, and that's driven the market for these type of companies. Why don't you share a transaction that you were involved in that involved that type of company that benefited from this surge in online business and the Amazons of the world? Yeah, it, interestingly, you wouldn't think it would, but uh, this particular company uh, serviced the forklift industry. In the forklift industry, uh, because of uh, the increased activity at warehouses, uh, because of online sales, uh, you know, needed a lot of support and uh, really uh, had increased uh, activity, uh, the likes of which they, they really hadn't seen before. So this particular company, uh, customer base was made up of, of the forklift industry because they created, they uh, manufactured, serviced and maintained uh, drive units and motors and other type of specialized parts for forklifts. So uh, these forklifts were obviously uh, uh, used in, in the warehouse. Uh, they were deployed there. Uh, so this company became uh, very busy and very profitable over a short period of time. And it had always done well, but it really started doing extraordinarily well, uh, which caught the eye of a private equity buyer, did, you know, t did target the company, uh, Probably as a standalone, not as a uh, you know, not as a tuck-in, uh, or not as a uh, 
you know, platform, but as a standalone company. Uh, so this is an example of one, you know, a hot industry at the time, you know, due to COVID and due to the uh, uh, increase in online uh, activity, increase therefore in warehousing, and therefore an increase uh, in anything that services the forklift and warehousing industries. Um, so transaction went, you know, when you asked before, did, you know, have transactions gone smoothly? I'd say of all the ones I've talked about, this one was probably the smoothest, straightest line. Uh, the Two partners, two owners, about the same age, about the same temperament, uh, no issues between the owners. They were aligned and um, certainly on the same page throughout the uh, process. Uh, so you had uh, a confluence of factors. You had uh, good sellers because the, the partnership was in good shape. You had a hot industry, uh, an industry that at the time was, was sought after, and you had a private equity buyer. So all these things sort of came to uh, fruition and uh, this company sold uh, fairly rapidly from uh, LOI, you know, from from going into the marketplace to getting an LOI signed, and then going from the letter of intent to uh, closing uh, was was fairly rapid. When you say relatively rapid, are you talking six months, four months, ten months? What? Well, well, typically the the deals I work on take anywhere from six to nine months to close. Um, so from the time. Uh, it goes to market or the time uh, from the time there's uh, indications of interest that are sent back from pr from prospective buyers, you know, typically could take anywhere from six to nine months to actually close the transaction, sometimes longer. Uh, this one closed in about four months. So that's that's ra you know, that's fairly rapid in, in, in the deals and the transactions that I work on. That's almost like a hundred yard dash. <laughs> Yeah, sort sort of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very few, very few that I'm aware of, and that have been talked about here on the podcast. Close in, in that time frame. Well, this has been delightful, Bob. I uh, can tell, and I'm sure our audience will agree that you know your depth of experience and the types of transactions you've been involved in, and the type of expertise you bring to the table can facilitate a transaction. And I think that our audience should hear pay attention to one of your earlier comments that you almost uh, small closely held businesses almost have to create their own market and that's why it's important to get someone that can help create that market and even if you know people that might buy your business they can create a, a competitive bidding situation in many types of transactions so bob uh, as we wrap it up here today, why don't you share a little bit about how if people wanted to reach out to you and chat a little bit more about maybe their specific situation, how would they get a hold of you and what's the best way for them to reach you? Sure, I could be reached by uh, email or direct telephone. Uh, my telephone number is 860-331-2766. Uh, uh, you could call me at that number at any time uh, or email me at uh, crzellinger at hinkleyallen.com, H-I-N-C-K-L-E-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com. Okay, well, great. I appreciate your time, Bob. This has been a delightful conversation. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you very much, Marvin. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember... 
Maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. 